Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Today's episode was originally published as Episode 90 Women and Sexual Health on the Voices About Living podcast. In this interview, Dr. Finlayson Fife talks with Valerie Hamaker about sexual agency in marriage. If these topics resonate for you and you want to learn more, please visit Dr. Finlayson Fife's website and check out the online courses that she offers and keep an eye out for her couples retreat coming later this year. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? Hi. Hi, glad to be here. Yes, I had so much fun with you last time that we decided to get together again and talk a little bit more about sexual health. Uh, and, a, and a particular case presentation that I wanted to walk through with you. But for those of you who were not here with us last time, Jennifer, would you just give a little bit of a background on who you are and how you came to be the expert that you are in this realm and other realms? Sure. Um, so I, um, I got my PhD in counseling psychology and wrote my dissertation on LDS women and sexual agency. And because I already, you know, my training was around marriage therapy and couples in development, this was a, became my focus of doing work around relationships, emotional and sexual intimacy, and how to help people develop themselves in ways that facilitate this capacity in their lives and in their relationships. So I do a lot of, in addition to counseling work, I do um, online teaching and coaching and consulting. Uh, and helping people to address the challenges in their relationships so that they can keep growing and finding more happiness in their in their most important uh, relationships. Beautiful. I'm really just struck by, gosh, so much of the good that you do in the world and what a mentor you have been and continue to be to me. Yeah, thank you. Jennifer was uh, one of my very first professional mentors when I was in graduate school. She kind of held my hand through many years, uh, finishing grad school, uh, specializing, walking me through how to open a private practice, uh, how to be a woman of faith and manage motherhood and running a business and public speaking and marketing myself. I mean, lots of layers of goodness that you have um, given to me and I owe you a great debt of gratitude. Thank you, Jennifer. (laughs) Thank you. Mel. It's My really pleasure. fun. Yeah, it's really fun, actually, as I mean, that was many years ago that we kind of started collaborating. And I have to say, I just what came up for me during our first podcast together is how much fun it is to be working with you and collaborating with you as as a colleague. That's really fun yeah. for me. Yeah, that's great. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so here we go. We are going to talk a little bit about a particular couple. I have changed some identifying details, certainly, and names. And yet I'm going to walk through this. And this is great because Jennifer actually mentioned in the last episode, and I'm going to just throw this out there for you guys so that you guys know this. She's preparing to do something like this of her own, uh, your own podcast. Am I right? Yes, on that? That's right. It's yeah. going to be called Room for Two because what I think in marriage is so much the goal is, is this as I talked about in the last podcast, this ability to be free within the context of your marriage. And so it's this idea of how do couples create room for each other. And so it, it of course, has a double entendre there of room for two. (laughs) Love that. Yeah. So that's, but I'll be interviewing couples 
and coaching them on what I see happening and how they're each participating in a marriage that creates either frustration or low intimacy and ways they can each grow to become more capable of an open-hearted and open-minded marriage. So, yeah. yeah. That's really, really beautiful. What you speak to, I, you know, it's interesting. I was just in a meeting earlier today and I was talking about this, this delicate balance that we're all trying to manage around autonomy, mm-hmm. you know, the desire for autonomy and selfhood and the desire for connection. That's right. And how marriage is the ultimate balancing act of how to achieve both in a way that both parties feel deeply seen, but mm-hmm. also feel deeply as if they own themselves. That's right. Yep. And, exactly. Know, and it's a it's a very meaningful balancing act. And a lot of times that the frustrations around it make people think something's going wrong. Right. But really it's just part of the system and it and the struggle of it drives a lot of development in people. Well, and I think if people have, you know, I kind of feel the more the more couples counseling I do, the more I recognize that most of the time, not always, mind you, most of the time they're right on schedule if all sorts of things are coming up for them as the years go by. And the system is working. Oftentimes it begins to work according to how they have been socialized. Yeah. And in ways that are not healthy and are not, that's right. And they're not growth oriented for the individual or actually for the couple. And so when things come to a head, it's actually evidence that finally the, the couple or the individuals, one, one or the other, you know, some, some yes. leads, <laughs> yes. but that means that finally growth is actually occurring. And that's like, this, yes. is, this is it. This is, this is the good yeah. news. So. Exactly. When people come in and it's like, we're broken yeah. and really it's like, no, it's the, the limitations of the system you created yes. are now revealing itself. And it's an opportunity for a new level of growth. So I see it as like a good thing. They may not be (laughs) so excited, but I do, you know, it can be very, very productive. Well, and Mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're in crisis because what's happening is somebody is shifting their way of doing the dance that really in some ways has never developmentally been as healthy as it could have been. Yes. And I think the beautiful thing that you and I can do in situations of that nature is actually normalize that what you're doing and what's happening here is leading you to the capacity for increased growth and this isn't falling apart this is actually you know an opening to something that you don't even have an imagination for as of yet that's right that's right so So some people if they come in and there's a been a breach in the marriage or something and i'm not in any way being trivial of how painful that can be right they sort of imagine, you know, kind of duct tape the family, the, the marriage back together and just grieve that it's not what it used to be. And there is some of that. And that is how some people do it. I mean, that is to say that is all that they do with that. But couples, there are couples that go on and thrive. And and Esther Perel talks about that, sort of these distinctions around how people come out of affairs. But the people that go on to thrive have actually then grown from it and they've become better people. They become different people. And so they're able to take the pains of the of the earlier marriage, yep. learn from it, and grow into people more capable of love and intimacy. Well, and most of the time, you know, what they offer to us as they have worked through that is they are nothing like they used to be. And I think that's right. Grieving at first, like, oh, please just make it go back to the way it was. And that's right. And as the growth unfolds they don't even recognize who each of them used to be, but they're so much more in love with themselves yeah. and yeah. themselves as a couple than they, than they could have even imagined. And That's right. So yes. we get to sort of shepherd them through that and offer them the hope that like, no, nothing's lost. 
and yeah. we can kind of do this together. And it's, it's yeah. better than you even could have imagined, even after addiction or affair or whatever that thing is. That's right. It's less about what they come in for and more about having sort of a hope that healing can take place and really individual growth, accountability That's right. for oneself, I think is, is just paramount to the, to the yes. process. That's right. So one thing you said, Jennifer, that's going to help us sort of jump into this particular case is in your preface and kind of talking to us about what you do. And I think this was, you used the, these, this actual phrase in how you described your dissertation is mm. sexual agency. That's right. And mm -hmm. oh boy, is that a big topic, especially in sexual health with women. Yes. And um, this particular case really, really goes deeply into the concept of sexual agency. So let me go ahead and read to you this case and then let's just visit about it. So this couple has been married for 30 years and have raised a family of children. I'm going to call them Joe and Sally. Mm -hmm. So Sally reports being raised in an extremely religious but emotionally cold family and never having even been hugged by her father until her graduation day. Sex education in their home consisted of mom telling her that one got pregnant by sleeping with a boy, and which she said left her terrified her entire childhood going camping with her family and her brothers mm, because she didn't yeah. know. Yeah, so just a lot of angst and fear. And dad's only one and only piece of counsel to her was never to have oral sex. Mm. Needless to say, when she entered marriage, she had an enormous amount of anxiety about sex. Joe, on the other hand, was very excited to be sexual with his wife, but unfortunately struggled off and on throughout their early marriage with, with pornography and masturbation, which of course with her history completely horrified and terrified mm. her. Yes. So when, Sal, when they presented to see me, however, he had overcome these struggles. He hadn't looked at pornography, had not struggled with masturbation for about 15 years. And mm. however, most of their marriage had consisted of Joe's intense pressuring and guilty Sally to perform sexually in ways that frightened her and mm -hmm. in her complying and dissociating to be to prevent him from punishing her mm -hmm. psychologically. Yeah. Guilting and shaming and things like that. Additionally, throughout the marriage, Joe had uncontrolled bipolar two and Sally reports years of financial and emotional fear and instability. Upon presenting to see me, he had also been medicated for many years and was completely stable. And really, she does report that when they came to start seeing me, he was, in fact, pretty much a different guy than the one she had been married to for the vast mm -hmm. majority of their marriage. So I think that's what mm -hmm. makes this kind of a complicated case. Mm -hmm. And I heard stories throughout um, our time together that literally did not resemble this man before me. And even she would mm -hmm. say, he's just like, and he just a a dear, gentle, kind, accountable mm -hmm. man and a different, a different, whole different guy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we worked through for over a year, all sorts of trauma struggles that came about through the early years of their marriage. Mm -hmm. And she just never was really willing to talk about sex. When we got through a lot of the emotional trauma that had happened through those early years of marriage, finally, she, be, she felt safe enough to talk about their sexual relationship. And though she felt emotionally safe with him, she still has been terrified of sex in general, but mm -hmm. certain sexual expression in specific, especially those associated with their history and his pressure. Mm -hmm. She feels an intense need to control their sexual relationship, but she also feels um, expressed to me a nearly constant feeling that he is emotionally far away from her, even when he really feels and he offers to her that he doesn't feel far away from her anymore. 
Okay, and then just finally, she concludes um, that although he's a totally different person, she cannot figure out a way to relax herself sexually with him. And um, he's trying to be patient, but I think they are at a bit of a, they had mm-hmm. been at, you know, a bit of a standstill because she's living in kind of a, a time warp. So mm-hmm. the interesting mm-hmm. case though, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, let's see, there was a couple questions I wanted to ask. Sure. Um, the distance that she feels distant. Di- oh yes, that's exactly okay. what it was. Yeah. So when you said that she feels distant, is it from him? Is it when he's aroused, meaning when he's aroused that the way he's sexual is to kind of be really absent or is it just in general? Do you know? It's, it's more in the moment. And mm-hmm. I worked with her quite a bit about sort of what were her helping her have some slightly pr- perhaps more realistic expectations about mm-hmm. what it meant to be emotionally and intimately connected in the moment of the height of one's arousal. In other words, she kind of would say things like, I need him to lock eyes with me and keep talking to me Uh, throughout the whole experience. And in my mind, I'm like, well, (laughs) you know, I Mm -hmm. I understand why, because she's her her biggest, she is kind of one of those sort of, um, I would say, survivor wives who is always in competition with the pornography in their, Mm -hmm. in their sexual relationship right like whether or not it's real and in his mind and his he claims it is it is a thing of the past and it is over yeah she cannot distance herself from the fact that he is not with her he is with them yes and i hear in it that she very much wants control this is the way she i think relates to sex as a way to have control over the marriage and over him that's where my gut goes. So it, mm-hmm. to be sexual is to keep him from looking at porn or mm-hmm. keep him from going anywhere else, perhaps. But also she's trying to manage who the man is she's with. So it might be in part why she wants this lock eyes and don't be anywhere else. It's a way of kind of knowing, mm-hmm. wanting to kind of control his erotic mind. Yes, and yeah. so th- that's just kind of issue number one. Now, he may be somebody that's not as trustworthy as he says. I- I'm just putting that as an aside. We can yeah, come to yeah. that question. So I'm not saying I know he's 100% trustworthy and she's just a control freak. But but I would say just as a starting point, she's relating to marriage as a place for her to be safe. And she doesn't feel safe because there's another mind and another person there. And so she's trying to kind of control it, even if it's in a kind of covert kind of control. Right. She's trying to manage her safety by managing him, trying to have him be the right kind of husband. Yes. And actually, I didn't even add this to the case study, but there are multiple layers and levels of that around Mm -hmm. diet, exercise, medication, Mm. I mean, she's I, controlling like what he eats and things like that. You mean, or, or yes, yes. Uh-huh. Just, I think the pervasive sense of, and I think this has to do with yeah. some of the, um, again, their early years where she has felt frightened and alone. And there's a lot of childhood history in this too, this idea that I'm not safe in this marriage. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to sort of construct the illusion of safety by trying to micromanage your every mm. movement. Yeah. Which of course doesn't go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't go well. And I think, you know, often, because I work very much with, you know, faith-based people, that especially the way that women can be socialized within the culture is that you are dependent on a man and that's the way God wants it. And so, you know, 
you want to find a good man, I sometimes put it in the metaphor of you're hooking your cart to somebody's horse. Okay. And so you're going to look for a nice, strong horse, you know, Yeah. but then when you make that hook into that person, it's a, it's an inherent dependency. Yeah. And so a lot of women forge a life in trying to control the horse because they are dependent, but they are so entangled in that person that they can't handle him having his own thoughts and his own erotic mind and his own desires or beliefs because they feel so dependent on who he is and so rather than kind of forge their own life you know in in, back to this idea of making room for your own autonomy they try to control somebody else so that their life is therefore good that's the fantasy and so in the one hand they're kind of in a one down position but in another way they're trying to pull all the strings from that one down position i'm dependent on you i feel anxious i'm anxious about what you looked at 20 years ago and and they're and they're using their vulnerability to have permission for that control so it sounds to me like what i'm hearing you say is there are two things going on this makes a lot of sense to me that Mm. that she in some ways was probably socialized to, I'm not remembering the metaphor, the, the language. You yeah, need. I, I used like the a, horse in the cart. The, yeah, yeah, you, you hook your cart to this person, the horse, the husband, yes. the wife becomes dependent yeah. on the man, right? Yes, and exactly. so having, and you know, and the illusion there, of course, is that when one does that and everybody is sort of colludes in this dynamic, everybody lives happily ever after, right? That's right, exactly. so, Cinderella's happy. <laughs> yes, That's and so, so everyone colludes in this, and I think that in and of itself is is fraught because generally yes. speaking, when somebody grows up, we one would hope that they grow out of that because they're not finding fulfillment and satisfaction either from the one up or for the one down. Both are going That's to be right. satisfied if they're healthy human beings. Right. And as I talk about a lot in my courses, is they're both dependent positions because the yes. horse also needs to be needed, right? That is a needy position as well. So it's a it's a collusion in a dependent model. And somebody is going to have to have the courage to break out of that for the couple to then get healthy, which is kind of how we started our time together today. Yes. So I see that as one piece of the problem. And then I think nested within that is add to it some some layers of where he didn't sort of play his part as promised, as it were. Yes. Meaning right. he ends He's up- He's supposed to be the prince and he was not. <laughs> <laughs> and so he didn't, he, he didn't comply in the, you know, not that I'm, you know, certainly not putting yeah. a finger, but he had bipolar too. He had some instability, right. which ended up being, it caused financial problems. It caused emotional problems. He ended up struggling in his own sexuality with. Yes. So, so he didn't keep the rules that That's were right. handed to the both of them that were supposed to keep everybody stable and happy. So That's right. two layers of problems going on here. That's right. And then she can, you know, I see this happen a lot within my work, which is that she now has a victim narrative because her community has kind of offered her that he was a bad horse. He's a bad prince, however, <laughs> whichever metaphor we're using here. And, <laughs> and, you know, he's, he may be in recovery, he's getting better, but now she kind of has a right to control. She has a right to be super anxious mm-hmm. because the one she's dependent on has been undependable. And rather than challenging that whole system of dependency, oftentimes people use it to kind of say, now I get more control because I don't have any reason to trust you and I need to feel safe. And they're trying to get safety in a model that will never offer offer safety. You don't get safety, especially in the sexual realm, by micromanaging somebody because first of all, they don't want to be there. And yeah, they're going to definitely check out when they're with you. And they might even have a different fantasy because it's hard to eroticize you when you're controlling so much. 
Right. And so you can't get the control you want, even though you're trying to leverage that you now are owed it. And so you never actually have safety because you know, way, way down, you can't control the thing you're trying to control. Right. Well, it's much harder for people, I think, to back as much as I might explain that to somebody in a session. They're like, yeah, but I still want control. Like, come on. I got <laughs> and I want people to have control of themselves. I want them to basically put their anchor or build their house on a rock. I mean, I want people to have safety, but because they're anchoring into something stable and that is their own integrity, their yes. own wisdom, their ability to control who they are their ability to be awake to who their partner is, to see, is my partner trustworthy or not? Because she's saying, I still don't trust, I still don't trust. And it's a little bit in the frame that he's got to somehow produce the issue of his trustworthiness so she can trust. My question is, does she not trust because he's not trustworthy and or because she has no interest in trusting or even capacity to trust? Because if she trusts, she forsakes the thing she wants, which is the control. Interestingly, I have actually said, we really spent a lot of time on this whole paradigm of like, sometimes not trusting someone is actually good judgment. Right. Because they're not trustworthy. <laughs> right. Right. And sometimes exactly. not trusting someone has more to do with my own lack of development. That's right. And exactly. another kind of frame that I've kind of worked around with this is, are we talking about struggles with sex itself? Or are we talking about the fact that maybe sex with you is what I'm having a problem with. Which yeah. one is it? And the thing that's so interesting about this is that I'm kind of putting together as, as you and I talk is that she will admit that he is in fact trustworthy. Mm -hmm. She will also admit that she desires sexual development in herself, but it seems clear to me as we, as we break this down, that there's still a little bit of a payoff in having mm -hmm. the control and the power here. Yes. And he maybe feels guilty enough or is compliant enough. I, I'm not sure. That's a little the picture I have. I'm not entirely sure, sure where sure. he kind of will go along. I work with a lot of men. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a men's sexuality course. And a lot of men are kind of in this nice guy position yeah. where they're they don't want to hurt the wife. She does feel victimized. All this, yeah. So they're kind of accommodating so much, sure. but then they don't have a sense of freedom sexually. So they also are somewhat masked when they show up sexually. They are also kind of harder yep. for them to feel a lot of desire or freedom with their spouse. And so that can then create some of the, how to say it, that the wife may want to then say, I want to keep control, even though it's the mm -hmm. very thing that keeps him in that nice guy, yes, well, less than honest position. And he, you know, gosh, I see this all the time. And he colludes in it again, I like the way you say that as a nice yeah. guy, especially if he has a history that's less than savory, <laughs> right? That, yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is it's like, well, I deserve to be, you know, in the one down in this way. And so I can't right. assert, you know, what I want and what I deserve. That's Even right. My presence, especially if there's, you know, years of data that say he is trustworthy and he right. has in fact changed and healed and he is a different kind of guy. Now, let me, let me shift gears just a little bit and ask her. Sure. Okay, so on the one hand, I, I'm, I'm getting and I'm appreciating this idea that like, we need to help her see sort of the, the framing up as fundamentally fraught from mm -hmm. the, sort of the social position, you know, horse and cart, prince and princess, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. right? And then we need to see, okay, this has become complicated because not only did the, did the framing up not work, but it has been complicated because he didn't, he didn't sort of comply with his responsibilities within that frame. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Separate from that, though, we have the real trauma of his, in her words, assaulting her over the years sexually. Now, where do I pressure her development towards really not trying to sort of hold on to that power, as it were? And where do I look at and show compassion on the fact that she's actually being activated in some sexual trauma itself? Like, where, what is the sort of... Yeah, I- yeah. Good. Can you remind me, like, how does she, how does she think about the issue of trauma? Like, meaning when he was like acting out things that he had seen in porn or yeah. how does she think about that? Well, it's more of a lots and lots of memories and experiences of forcing himself upon her mm. in specific. In very specific so when he was in these hypomanic phases, mm-hmm. he would get very, I see, I see. Yes. Got it. So it is in fact, I mean, it does right. have the flavor of actual sexual trauma which is and it is kind of isolated around certain types of sexual expression and the way i've kind of worked with them is you know i want her to feel like she's the initiator that she has sort of you know like i would work with any sexual trauma history you need to feel like you have your autonomy that you choose it i want you to you know pressure yourself into choosing the kind of sexual expression when where how because you feel that he's trustworthy but then when she says, I get in there and I freeze. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. So yeah, because I would want to make a distinction and, and I don't know exactly the answer for her, of course, because I don't sure. know enough about yeah, it. But, just, just thoughts. But just thoughts. So, but I think that what I'm looking at is, is the person using the frame of trauma to stay in the mm. covert power? I'm not saying she is, but is, are they using that frame to keep alive the idea that I get the control? Right. And I get the kind of covert power of being traumatized. Yes. Or is this person really truly having a physiological where they're basically regressive mind, they get hijacked. Okay. And they are really going into an acute regression. Right. Because what really matters (laughs) because then you know what you have to work with. And so if let's say it is an acute regression that her mind really does go into the, oh my gosh, I'm being traumatized again, even though my rational mind might know that that's not the case, that um, I would be working with the two of them around learning how to settle, like almost like, um, like you do in behavior therapy. What's, I can't say the name right now, but like when somebody has a phobia and you're, Mm, I know um, <laughs> yeah, the exposure, you're graduating exposure, exposure therapy. therapy. So you're graduating the level of exposure mm-hmm. and that I would work with them around self-regulating. So assuming these other pieces have been addressed, which I think right. probably need to happen first. Yes. She needs to take deeper responsibility for her life, see how she kind of uses her husband to not grow. But if she's in a position of more stability within herself and she's saying, I keep having these acute regressions and they're getting in my way and I know that they're not right and I need and I want to work with my mind, then I'm not a trauma therapist. So there's going to be trauma therapists that would know better how you would do this. But the basic idea is that you are creating two things. You want to have more of the physical experience of collaboration and freedom. Yes. what I do with a lot of the couples I work with is I have them in do, for example, a hug in which they're standing on their feet as a starting place. They are kind of anchored into their own psyche and their own body. And then they put their arms around each other and their minds are mapping each other's mind, but they're learning to calm down deeply physically. Wow. When people calm themselves down and they're physically 
mapping the other person and can mm-hmm. feel the other person's breath and they can feel the other person's heartbeat and so on. But they can really anchor into their own sense of self when they're with their partner. They're learning the kind of basic ecology, mm-hmm. emotionally, the ecology of good that I can really be with you and really be with me. And you start with something like a hug that is going to be, I mean, some people need to start at something even more primitive than, or I don't mean primitive in that way that that sounds, but I mean something less exposed, more elementary than that. Uh, but you you want to be where you're feeling a little challenge and you're, and you're, but you're learning to kind of really settle down. And the more people settle down, the more yeah. close to their spouse they feel. So they start feeling this kind of physiologically, how you, the foundation of good sex. And then you start having progressively more and more mm-hmm. exposure because then you're more sexuality coming into the connection because you're now having more the experience of bringing your sexuality while knowing where is that sort of emotional foundation. Yes. Yes. And so then I- you may do this around the sexual act itself that is traumatizing, mm-hmm. but you kind of foundationally prepared yourself. And then you may regress. You may still go. And but you work together as a couple and saying, okay, I need I need you to stop. Let's let's back up. Yes. But but because it's collaborative, the brain can keep track of yes. much better this sense of agency. And if you're losing that sense because you're regressing, you assert your choice, you work together as a couple, yes. and your mind is like, okay, I'm safe because I was able to stop something that I was more than yes. I could do. Which so is you're kind of-, of staying in that working frame, not going you know, jumping in and hoping it works out. You're trying to stay in a frame where your brain is a bit stressed, yeah. but it can, it's workable. And that's so, where brain change happens. I love this. So you're talking about, first of all, starting way at the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, I love right. this idea of like a hug or even the, the holding of a hand. Right. And we're looking at the sympathetic nervous system. We're looking at how to regulate one's own yes. breath. Yes. And one's own heart rate and going yes. really, really slowly to help one learn that they can self-regulate in the presence of the other, which then is co-regulatory, yes. but first and foremost, it's self-regulatory. Yes, that's right. And then you're scaffolding the process so that you're moving closer and closer into sort of, I would guess you'd say maybe in this case, sort of like riskier behaviors for the sympathetic nervous system. Yes, exactly. And the way I think about it, it's like when you go to the gym, yeah. Let's just say you have no stress on your muscles and 10 is you're hurting your muscles. Okay. Right. Well, the ideal place to be is like, let's say it's a seven. You're, you're yeah. uncomfortable, but you're, it's productive. You're not doing any harm. It's right. similar with the brain. You don't want to be so relaxed. You're like, hey, what, what's the point of this assignment? I don't even know. But you don't want to feel like you're drowning either because it's because the, the brain change happens around seven. So you want to be a bit uncomfortable. You want to kind of not look forward to the exercise. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Because you know, you're like, okay, this is a little hard for me, but it's a productive space and you're working through it. But what happens is where that window of tolerance is expands into more and more collaborative engagement. As you scaffold it in the presence of the other and help them sort of become, you help them prep themselves for the possibility that they're going to be reaching or at least getting close to their window of tolerance. And when they do, because of course, sometimes you don't know what it is until you've, you've passed it, passed yes. it. Yeah, that's right. have almost like a game plan around how collaboratively yes. this couple can back themselves out and use that that's in right. and of itself as like almost like a successful failure. Like, oh, hundred percent. Because yeah. I think when a couple can work together, like, you know, I'll say like, sometimes that these are 
these are exercises that Dr. Schnarch developed mm-hmm. in his neurobiological approach. But like, you know, if you're doing something and you feel that you're losing your ability to feel your partner, that they're yes. they're stepping back, yeah. that you read that and you work with that and you step back with them, meaning you wow. don't go ahead of where you can be together and yes. collaboratively. So when a couple can sort of sync itself to be collaborative, well, that becomes its own, you know, that's when couples like, we can do anything together. If we can work yeah. together productively and each yeah. take responsibility for our part in the success of this, well, then you can do a lot. Well, what you're describing there is actually like, that is intimacy right there. Yeah, yeah. In a perfect world, sexual intimacy, you know, always just goes just as planned, right? But then there's the rest yeah. of us, right? <laughs> sure. No, and, so exactly. Yeah. And intimacy in this realm is someone being, I mean, I think this couple would be a beautiful example of of the male partner being extremely um, attentive and tender and watching and waiting and following her lead and letting letting the process unfold in a way that shows her that he is deeply present with her no matter where she goes. Yeah, that he's invested in her success yes. uh, while not coddling at the right. same time. So like supporting her as like a woman who's capable and able yep. and challenging herself. Yes. But yes, he's invested in it and he's a friend and a partner in it. I mean, I think of like the best sex is ultimately like a sexual friendship in its core. Right. It is a friendship of two people yeah. that work together to create something good for two. Right. But it can be good for me and good yes. for you, but I don't have to give myself up on your behalf. Yes. No, you know, exactly. for the relationship, because then of course, you know, that's right. a, a really super quick way for one to sort of lose their own sexual desire and sexual that's right. self. <laughs> so. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This has been super interesting. And I have really, really enjoyed the way we have broken this case down. Do you have any final thoughts and feelings about this case or anything that kind of comes up for you as we talk about this idea of sexual agency? Because I think that's what this really is, is kind of learning how to own oneself yeah. sexually in the face of kind of a complicated relationship. Yeah. Uh, the only other thought that's sort of in my mind, and it's maybe implicit in it, it's just like the, the, the intensity of the controlling environment she grew up in, that this was a family that used religion as a way to have control. Oh, yeah. And control over how much was knowable. Like you yes. can't actually show your mind in the family. This is not about sex per se. I mean, they were also very sexually rigid, but... So you, there's no room. And and then the way the parents deal with their anxiety is through being hyper-controlling of the child. Isn't that interesting? That's just... So, so this out. is just... Yeah, she's just playing it out. This is how you get safe as you control the people around you. And so she's found a frame to con- try and control the person who broke the boundaries of control. Right. And so that's how they have played that out. And so it's just a piece that I think would be valuable for her to see why she's doing what she's doing but also the negative effect that it has had on her sense of self, her sense of freedom, uh, her, her, you know, she did, never grew up thinking it's safe to let your own mind be knowable. Right. It's a hundred percent not safe. What's so your- she's really looking through control to get that sense of safety. Mm-hmm. I think that is extremely interesting. And you know what we talked about this a little bit in our last episode together, but it is very true that first of all, so much of what, informs our capacity to be in safe relationships sexual is sexually is completely not connected to our sexuality it's just a way we express our selfhood that is a reflection of our larger story 
hundred percent. And so many people grow up in families that you learn sitting around the dinner table that it's not safe to be open-minded, meaning to let people know your mind or to know your heart. Mm -hmm. Then those are people that are supposed to grow up, get married and take their clothes off with each other. Like, forget it. You know what I mean? They might get through the act of sex, but they don't, they have no interest in letting somebody permeate their soul. Right. And so that, you know, it's just a natural outgrowth of what they've come out of. And then they sit around thinking they're broken when really, how would they know any differently yet? Mm, That's in some ways kind of empowering because it helps, first of all, feel like there's nothing worse than feeling like something's wrong at the core of me that I can't be this particular way. And that's right. To help them see themselves not as broken, but in some ways sort of, um, it's a natural outgrowth of the larger system that you have no awareness of because it's what you've always been immersed in. That's right. You really didn't have a choice to do otherwise, to be honest. I mean, I'm not denying agency, but there's often very limited given the context that you're coming out of. And so I'm often saying to people, I don't know how you would have done it much differently. I mean, and now it's not working. So it's an opportunity to grow into something freer. But, you know, you are here, you come by it honestly. Yes. And so empowering and validating to like Mm -hmm. the legitimacy of their suffering. And it's permission giving that like, it's okay that you've been there. And I'm sorry you have suffered so much. And here you are. And we can see this a different way. And you can be this way. And you are probably, you know, the one thing that kind of comes up for me as we talk is that like, to empower our clients to see that they are far more competent and capable and able to overcome than I think they think they are. Oh yeah, right. Human beings are amazing in their ability to grow and change. It's uncomfortable. And so a lot of people don't do it or they'd rather fight with their therapist or coach than grow (laughs) (laughs) or their spouse or whoever. So it's uncomfortable, you know, but it is well worth it because, you know, it's just like working out. It's uncomfortable, but it's worth it because you get all the benefit of that extra muscle and strength. Same with psychologically, you know, it's uncomfortable, but your your whole life frees up and it gets easier. Well, and I think we see them sometimes sadly when the discomfort becomes so intense that they'll even do therapy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. So true. What a, what a blessing. Um, you have been to me to have this lovely conversation. I, yeah, have just thoroughly enjoyed our time yeah. together, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. I yeah. liked it. If today's episode was meaningful for you, we ask that you please leave a review. Leaving reviews helps the show grow and reach more people so that more people can benefit from the information that Dr. Finlayson Fife shares. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in the show notes below to find her website, online courses she offers, information on upcoming events, and her free Facebook group.